Headquarters to all units. Headquarters to all units. All units stand by for On Patrol with the PPD, airing now on WTBR 89.7 FM. Good morning. You're listening to On Patrol with the PPD. I am your co-host, Gary Munn, Smart Gary. And as we're just trying to get things set up, we're going to get a quick check of the weather, and we'll be right back. WTBR radar weather for the Pittsfield area. Today, patchy fog this morning. Mostly sunny. Highs in the lower 60s. Northwest wind 5 to 10 miles per hour. Tonight, mostly clear in the evening, then becoming partly cloudy. Lows in the lower 40s. West wind 5 to 10 miles per hour. Saturday, mostly sunny. Highs in the upper 60s. West wind 5 to 10 miles per hour. Weather forecasts for WTBRFM are provided by the National Weather Service. Good morning. Thanks for tuning in to On Patrol with the PPD here on WTVR 89.7 FM, Pittsfield Community Radio, simulcast on Pittsfield Community Television. My name is Mike Wynn. I'm one of the co-hosts of this weekly radio program. I'm also the chief of police here in the city of Pittsfield, and I am also running very late. Gary, thanks for holding down the fort. Uh, you know, I do the best I can. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so we're going to have to extend comfort dog officer, pro- probationary officer Winston's uh, probation. We have to extend it. Um, Winston literally had an accident as I was headed out the door to get here, uh, hence, hence the delay. Um, but he's a puppy, and these things are to be expected. So, um, let's get started. I'm going to do a real, real quick couple of news articles, and then we'll get into our programming. Uh, and then I'll, I'll kind of talk about what the schedule is going to look like for this show, because this one's going to be very, very unusual. Um, so, well, I'm pulling the, uh, the internet up here, I think... You know, from a police perspective, uh, as far as news stories, I think one of the big ones is the announcement this week by District Attorney Andrea Harrington about the expansion of the Berkshire County Law Enforcement Task Force to include the new. Um, it's it's an announcement of new, but it's really like an extension, um, the violent crime section of the task force. So the. Berkshire County Law Enforcement Task Force was originally founded as the Berkshire County Drug Task Force. It's fairly unique. We've talked about it on the program in the past. Berkshire County has the only joint task force in the Commonwealth that is entirely funded by the Commonwealth and has no federal sponsorship. All of the other, like countywide task force are, are federally overseen. Our task force was put together um, by the district attorney's office, by the previous DA, and it's actually a line item in the Commonwealth's budget. And so several years ago, shortly after I became the chief, the drug task force evolved into the law enforcement task force, and now the law enforcement task force is evolving yet again, um, and this specifically to deal with incidents of gender-based sexual violence and um, domestic violence. So, you know, I think we in Pittsfield forget and we take for granted that because we have a fully functioning 
and, and staffed detective bureau that we can spend a lot of investigative resources and follow-up time on cases that may generate um, within the home or within a relationship, not just, you know, uh, street crime. But a lot of the c- communities in Berkshire County can't do that. They don't have their own investigative units. They don't have their own detective bureau. And so well, they may handle the original response just like we would in patrol they don't have the resources to to go beyond that and so now the task force with this new unit um be supervised by sergeant mauer from the state police uh, draw from troopers and deputies and officers from a variety of communities they'll be available to go out and further those investigations and do those follow-ups so that's a big deal for the county and uh, you know gary knows um but you know for our viewers and listeners at home you've heard me say this you know priorities for the Pittsfield Police Department, as long as I've been in command, have always been reduction of gangs, guns, and drugs, right? That's that's one. We keep those together. Uh, mo- fatal motor vehicle and, and serious injury motor vehicle crashes and domestic violence recidivism, right? If we could if we could move the needle on those three things, the city would be much, much safer. And so, you know, now the county will be much, much safer. So again, a big deal on that one. Uh, another news article, uh, top of the fold, top of the page in today's Berkshire Eagle. And this has been an ongoing conversation for the police department for a long time. And it was top of mind, um, you know, as we coming through the end of the summer, going into the school year, but it's another article on the utility and the efficacy of the school resource officers. And you can read the article. I'm not going to get into a lot of details, but, um, you know, we, we've had, a number of incidents in the schools in the, the last several weeks, including one that resulted in one of our school resource officers being injured. And as a result, on Tuesday, when there was three violent incidents uh, in Taconic, there was no officer in the school at the time. Um, officer Godfrey had to respond from another school. And, um, you know, again, you can go read the article or the article early in the week, but um, three teachers were injured as a result of um, one of one of Tuesday's phrase. So, you know, you can have um, you can have an opinion, but have an informed opinion. And you know, the district is going to have to make a decision about this by the end of this school year. Um, and you know, whatever decision is made, we're going to have to live with that. So, um, you know, I just I don't have kids at home, and uh, I'm not huge in like the the newer stuff that's going on on social media but if something trends on you know mainstream facebook and twitter i'm going to read about it so i know i know something about tiktok challenges right and i don't understand all of them most of them i look in and say you got to be out of your mind why would anybody do that for a little bit of notoriety but uh you know the suggested october tiktok challenge is slap a teacher i i'm not really sure who thought that that was a good idea to put out there to adolescents? And I'm not sure what the adolescents think they're going to gain from that other than catching a charge and a criminal record. Um, but, yeah, it's, it, this is what we're up against. So, all right. I, I think I'm going to stop there. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm way off my game this morning. Officer Derby's texting me. We may have a little bit of technical difficulty in this regard as well. Um, so, 
we're double booked. I, I'm going to have to jet out of here a little before the end of the show because I need to be in City Hall by 10 o'clock. Um, and that's unusual. And I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm going to apologize because I can't access Lieutenant Traverse's email. And for the life of me with the morning, I, I can't remember your name. I'm sorry. Julie McDonald. I'm sorry, Julie. That's, okay. that's just rude. Uh, <laughs> But I know you're with service now. Yes, I am. So, uh, Lieutenant Traversa is not with us today. hes I have to give Lieutenant Traversa full credit. Uh, he has stepped up and taking over the booking of the talent and the content for the program. And uh, as a result of that, he's been reaching out and updating the schedule. And he's you know sending me emails and saying, you know, this, this is who will be in studio on Friday. This is who will be in studio next Friday. And... Uh, but he couldn't join us today. He's taking care of a family thing. And as I said at the top of the hour, um, I'm, I'm off my game because of Officer Winston. So, Julie, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. I was actually hoping that Officer Winston would be here. I had the pleasure of meeting him last week. He, and he's adorable. He is. And he's supposed to be um, on his way out here, but he just got sent on a call. So... We we may have to take your suggestion and and just cut the programming early. We'll figure this out. We'll go um, we'll go with the flow. Maybe he can clear this call quickly. You know, they're busy this morning. I know he tries to stay available, um, but he hadn't. Officer Derby hadn't even picked Officer Winston up when I headed out here. So it, he may not. Even if he makes it out here, he may not have Officer Winston with him. But we'll make sure that you get to see Officer Winston again. Um, before we get started, I want to say, you know, I see you're wearing the, the pink. Oh, yes, thanks. It's October 1st. It's Breast Cancer uh, Awareness Month. That means that PPD and a bunch of our, you know, brothers and sisters in red and blue, um, we recognize Pink Patch Project. So uh, use of the pink badges and patches is authorized for the month. And see, we'll, we'll see who shows up in their pink today. <laughs> I, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, right? So we do... Pink Pack Project, Officer Derby led the charge on the Autism Awareness Project, so we've got the Autism Patches. Um, we haven't done anything with it yet, but I'm, I follow and I'm a member of several organizations dedicated to um, mental health and wellness for first responders and, and veterans. So you look at PT, PTSD Awareness Month, that's teal, right? We've got Alzheimer's, that's purple. We're just going to have to authorize a rainbow of uniform modifications. Yep. We might have to start getting the patches on Velcro, though. <laughs> it's too expensive to have them sewn on if we have to keep switching them out like that. One, one um, special purpose uniform, just change the patch of the badge. Yep. <laughs> All right. So, Julie. Yes, sir. Tell us, a, don't, you know, yeah. it's so like my wife says, right? I may be the chief, but I'm not the chief at home. You know, my home. My, um, my my friend and and colleague, uh, the departed Chief Jeff Russo, when he I can't use the language on the air, but when I made lieutenant, we were at a team training one day, and I said something that set him off, and he turned to me and he said, "You may be a something lieutenant, but you're not my something lieutenant," <laughs> and just kind of set the tone for that relationship. And so I may be a chief of police, but I'm not, you know, I'm not your chief. So um, Mike is fine. Thank you. Thank you. So you're with service, not. I am, yes. Yeah. I am currently the site manager for Pittsfield Emergency Shelter, which is operating out of St. Joe's currently. Right. And I'm also the acting director at Living and Recovery, a peer support, uh, peer-led program that we have through ServiceNet as well. 
Okay, so let's wind back the clock a little bit, and um, before we even get into what is ServiceNet, just tell us a little about you, where you're from. Yeah, so I grew start. up in Pownall, <laughs> right over the line. Right over the line. And uh, actually growing up, I remember thinking that I wanted to move to the big city of Pittsfield. Um, I moved to bigger cities than that uh, and found myself, I was in Albany, Troy for many years and moved back over the mountain about six, seven years ago. Okay. Um, I've worked in, I started in the sheltering system and human services, moved into addictions treatment for many years, and then moved into prevention by working at boys and girls clubs over in the Troy Albany area, um, doing sort of indirect prevention is what I call it, and found myself over here and wanting to serve this community differently. So I just started at ServiceNet, uh, just coming up on a year. Okay. So you changed jobs and went into the industry you're in during the pandemic? Yes, I did. And that actually is what prompted me. That's a bold move. That's what prompted me to do it, to be honest. One, I was going crazy at home. <laughs> but two, it just felt like the need was greater, right? Okay. Because so many people were working from home. And clearly, the pandemic has created much more difficulty for all of us, but specifically for the unhomed and those struggling with addiction and mental health. All right. So from Pownall... Over the line into the metro area of New York uh, capital region and then back over here during a pandemic. Um, so I was, I was in a meeting uh, at the sheriff's office on Tuesday. Uh, we actually were talking about how we're going to move forward with the, the hub table mm. project. And um, in our conversation with, you know, providers who are at the table service providers, including some partners from the Northern Berkshire Community Coalition, one of the things that came up, not for anybody at the at the table, but talking about our interactions with the community, is you know what exactly is ServiceNet? Who you know? I think most people who are kind of like in the know and plugged into service providers in the city, they might recognize the name Barton's Crossing, mm. but they might not know anything about what's behind or was behind Barton's Crossing and now the city's emergency shelter. So can you tell us just a little bit about ServiceNet? Well, I'm glad you said a little bit, Mike, (laughs) because that's about as much, because ServiceNet is a a huge organization um, that serves not only in Berkshire County, but in Hamden County, Hampshire County, Franklin County. So basically it's it's serving the underserved whether that's homeless shelters whether it's recovery centers um, whether it is uh, programs for people with brain injuries we do have a Berkshire vocational program as well so ServiceNet is a from from the places I've worked ServiceNet is a pretty huge organization here in Berkshire County we have Berkshire vocational services which works with people with Uh, disabilities and helps them to learn employment skills and all of that goes to work with them gives them on-the-job training at different sites we have Pittsfield Emergency Shelter formerly known as Barton's Crossing um, and who knows what it'll be known as in the future Future. Uh, living in recovery again as I mentioned is a peer-led peer-driven support community for those seeking recovery or in recovery Uh, and what else do we have I think that well and then we do have some um, brain injury and other dbis programs so so this was somebody asked me this tuesday and i didn't actually know the the overall organization of servicenet the the servicenet company where are they located they're in northampton okay i knew it was somewhere to the east but i wasn't specifically sure where and and actually um 
you know, I, as a patrol officer, as a patrol supervisor, I was familiar with Barton's Crossing, I think, before ServiceNet actually took over Barton's Crossing. Like, it, Barton's was, at one point was a, kind of a standalone entity. Um, and my introduction to ServiceNet didn't have anything to do with the unhoused or the homeless. I became aware of them because I was doing some training work over in the Northampton area mm. and the officers from Northampton and Amherst were working with ServiceNet on a variety of pro uh, largely around um, like poverty reduction and, mm. and feeding sites because mm. uh, we were training in a location that was also used by some of ServiceNet's programs. And so when ServiceNet, you know, I'm going to say expanded, but kind of like, you know, rose to the forefront, particularly through what they were doing with Bartons. I think that was for many of us in government service, our introduction locally to ServiceNet. Mm -hmm. And um, ServiceNet's been in charge of the shelter for a long time. Yeah, I, I believe they have. Yeah, and I know that the Shell Bartons has been around for a very long time and gone through many different many transitions. Yeah. Um, so obviously, Bartons Crossing was on Outer North Street. Now the emergency shelter is in the former St. Joseph High School on Maplewood. You mentioned two or three other programs, including the vocational program mm -hmm. and brain injury program. Where are they located? Well, they're, so the vocational services is located on North Street at, you know, the main office that we have there. Um, and then residential programs are scattered throughout. And, of course, we have a family shelter as well, which is a regular shelter. And we have scattered sites also, meaning that families get apartments, but we're still helping them in a... So is the family shelter the shelter that uh, it may still be known as or formerly known as our friend's house? Yes, it's still known as that. Okay. Yep. So again, another, because when I was a patrol commander, that was a standalone entity. Like uh -huh. I knew the executive director of our friend's house. I met with him regularly. Actually, I met with him before I was a police officer. I was at the Westside Neighborhood Resource Center and he was with our friend's house. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I think where I'm going, trying to take this conversation is one of the things that's happened as ServiceNet has risen as a player in the community is the consolidation of a lot of disparate programs. Um, so you're comparatively new to the uh, the Pittsfield-centered Berkshire County scene, but this is so you know in, in my entirety of my career in government service, this is something that comes up a lot. And I, again, I, I want to point it out for our viewers and listeners, because I'm not sure everybody realizes this. There is a unbelievable amount of programming in Berkshire County. Uh, and that's a good thing, right? It's, it's good intentioned people, well intentioned people with great ideas. But in many cases, when you do um, like a capabilities map or an asset map, you find out that what's happening is you've got a lot of under resourced duplicative programming and so somebody may experience a situation in their family or they may experience a loss and their immediate response is i'm going to start a nonprofit. i'm going to start a, 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 a foundation and we're going to address this issue but they don't do an asset survey so they don't find out that somebody else has already started a similar nonprofit or started a similar foundation and they're already trying to address that issue and now they're competing for resources right and so one of the things that has happened over the last decade plus 
is that organizations that have the capacity and they have the resources, they consolidate some of these, these existing uh, organizations or programs. And sometimes that causes a lot of concern or consternation because people have strong emotional connections to the organization that they've been associated with and they, and they kind of see it as a takeover. And that's not necessarily the best way to look at it because if it's increasing capability and reducing competition, it's better for the clients. Mm-hmm. Um, so ServiceNet has kind of expanded into um, all sorts of issues, particularly around issues of the unhoused or the homeless. Um, so you said about a year ago, which yeah. means you came in, I'm not going to say at the end, but kind of coming into the tail end of what was a very controversial year <laughs> in and around the city of Pittsfield, specifically around the issue of uh, homelessness. So at what point in the year were we with trying to address the population that was staying in Springside Park and the reopening of the emergency shelter? Right. So, and, and again, an, another reason that when I interviewed um, for the position that I really wanted to come into the position was because of what I had been reading all summer, was because of what was going on at Springside Park, was because of even just the misunderstanding of well-meaning people in the community um, and having worked in shelter systems before understanding that we can't control people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, right. may, we may offer to house them and to assist them, but we are not their, their keepers, right? So um, that really pushed me to be interested in doing this. So I, I was really on the tail end. There was still a lot of noise extraneously going on. I actually only stepped foot into Barton's once. Okay. Um, so I came in because I was training and all of that through the office, getting to know the different programs that we had. Um, but it was kind of winding down from Springside Somewhat. Somewhat. We're going through the, it sort of, you know, we're going to ask you guys to leave the park. You know, that was about the time that I came in. And so going out to the park, trying to let people know we were there, that we we're going to be at St. Joe's, seeing if they wanted to be sheltered there. Of course, as you know, Mike, a lot of people didn't, right? Because right. not everybody wants to be inside. Not everybody wants to be told you have to be in by 6 p.m. Or, you know, you cannot smoke in your room or you cannot bring a bottle in with you. And so I I was just sort of on the tail end of that and heading into some of the discomfort of some people with the shelter being downtown. So when you say um, that you had to have those conversations with like with the people who were up in Springside Park with mm-hmm. the resident, so you, you literally were on the team that had to go up into the park, mm-hmm. locate the sites, right. find the people if they were in the park during that period. Yeah, and I was there. Mostly I came, so the case managers that were doing that were didn't know me well enough yet that they were being somewhat protective of me having to walk through the woods with them. So, But they would mostly bring me down when we were bringing clothing and that to people when they were like in the pavilion to start to get to know people and build those relationships with them. Okay. So let's... um. Let's parse out something that you you just kind of identified as a as a concern or a consideration when particularly when you're dealing with the uh, unhoused population, and then we'll we'll talk about kind of what the the timeline of events and and what led to the timeline of events last year was. So you said, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but you, said, you know, we're not their keeper, and and some people 
choose mm-hmm. to remain unhoused. Right. And I, you know, I, again, I didn't spend a long time since I was in operations, but I remember, you know, being sent, we'd give a, a suspicious activity call or suspicious person's call. And we'd go, um, you know, sometimes it wasn't usually in Springside, ironically, that was, that was a comparatively <laughs> new issue. Um, but we'd go to Canoe Meadows or, you know, Clatt Park, uh, down by, uh, the, the, the river basin, uh, a lot of times out by the causeway, um, in many cases out of Berkshire crossing and ironically, like closer to Dalton Ave than on the backside of the crossing. And we'd interact with somebody and they're like, you know, I lost my apartment, but, uh, I'm working. You know, and mm-hmm. I got a friend that I can, you know, stay, you go over there and get cleaned up or I can go to the Y mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, this is, this is, this is my stuff. This is where I want to be. And they're capable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're not, they're not physically ill. They're not mentally ill, uh, but they have, they have autonomy and they want to be there. Yeah. And so when I, you know, when I, when I realized that sharing that with other members of government, like, look, you can't. They're trespassing. Mm. You you can make me go remove them from that property, and right. I'll do that. But you can't make me make them go somewhere else, right? right? They're they're a they're a human being with agency. They get to choose. Mm-hmm. Now, if somebody was at risk or somebody wasn't able to execute that agency, then we had a different path forward. Right. But somebody who chooses to remain in, and and they're, I'm not going to say they're doing well. But they're holding on, right? right. They, they kept their job. They're they're leading their life. Um, they're managing to feed themselves, and you know they choose to shelter in a tent. Mm-hmm. We may not get it. We may not even like it, but right. you know it is a reality. And then beyond that, in I, I don't know what the the proper trade term is, but there's also a, a huge segment of the chronically unhoused that they're 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 couch surfing. Right. right, like they lost their permanent living situation, but they've got a situation where they're they're kind of mobile, mm-hmm. but they're not going to show up on anybody's radar right. in a tent. Right, Correct. so most government officials aren't even aware that that population's there because mm-hmm. you're not going to get those police calls that would lead to that type of right. interaction. Mm-hmm. They're just they're doing their life, but they don't they're not they don't have an address and they're not necessarily going to show up on a census somewhere. So. You got to have to look at the whole span, right? right? right. Um, and then you've got to deal with the, the people who are unhoused and in crisis, but they've got underlying causes. They got them there. They mm-hmm. have substance abuse issues or mental health issues, um, history of family issues or violence, and they may not even be eligible for assistance through some of the existing structures that we have. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's it's really frustrating um, for the case managers, I know, and for many of us that even someone who has who is working toward changing their life and moving forward, if they've spent any significant time incarcerated, if they have a past felony, if they there are a lot of organizations that will not house them. So it's it's really a setup, right, for failure, because because then they have to go into something they can afford that's maybe compromised housing where there is substance use all around them. And then we're barking about the recidivism of, you know, the going in and out of 
of incarceration or going in and out of substance use. And, there, you know, this idea around housing, which I, I think we definitely need more of, right. but we also need to be able to support the people that are, we can't just plunk everyone in empty buildings and say now they're housed right. everything's okay because we're talking about intergenerational poverty substance use mental health issues and and again you know if we go back to the late 80s early 90s right when mental health units were like right. okay we're not going to do this anymore with good intention but like anything, it's like the pendulum went from, we don't want to lock people up, so we're just going to put them all out on the streets. Right. And by now, those people have had their children or were raising their children, and we're seeing many of the effects of that. Yeah, and so when, when we come back from a station break, you know, as you said, well-intentioned, some of, the, some of the results that we're seeing today are the direct results of conscious decisions that were made at a, a high government level during that period of the late 80s and early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I know the model has changed, particularly due to the pandemic, but I don't, I think a lot of our viewers and listeners may not be aware that um, at least at Barton's and to a lesser extent, because we had some backup plans when um, you transitioned to the St. Joe shelter, if somebody is, is, currently under the influence um you know not not the you know just went and had a couple of drinks and they got a buzz going but they're they're definitely under the influence they may not be eligible for admission at that point in time that's um, that actually yeah it, i know not, it's not true now right okay um, so before it was see yeah, i wasn't there yeah so <laughs> so at when we when we initially when barton's crossing expanded if we grabbed somebody you know in response to one of those calls that i was mentioning earlier and they were intoxicated at the point we contacted them we couldn't get them a bed Mm. until they sobered up um and so we and we don't have a detox and so if we took them to the hospital but they weren't medically compromised right the hospital didn't want them either and so now we're in the situation you know are they are they intoxicated enough that we can put them in protective custody and if it was alcohol then that was a you know, it was a difficult decision for us to make kind of from like an ethical point of view, but it was easy operationally. But up until the changes in the overdose law, mm. you couldn't PC somebody for drug intoxication. Right. So if it was other than alcohol, we were like, what do we do with them? You know, essentially, yeah. you know, find somewhere for them to sit where we could keep an eye on them until they're sober enough that mm-hmm. we can take them back to the shelter. All right. It's 930. You're listening to Hot Patrol with the PPD here on WTBR 89.7 FM. We're going to get another check of the weather, station identification, a couple PSAs, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to ask Julie about kind of the timeline that occurred last year. We'll discuss the timeline that occurred last year because you weren't here for some of it. Right. Uh, And then, as I said, I'm going to have to jet shortly. And at that point, we'll make a decision about whether uh, we're going to end the show early or if you two want to continue to chat until 10. We'll, We'll make a call on the air. All right, Gary, let's check the weather. WTBR radar weather for the Pittsfield area today. Patchy fog this morning. Mostly sunny. Highs in the lower 60s. Northwest wind 5 to 10 miles per hour. Tonight, mostly clear in the evening, then becoming partly cloudy. Lows in the lower 40s. 
West wind 5 to 10 miles per hour. Saturday, mostly sunny. Highs in the upper 60s. West wind 5 to 10 miles per hour. Weather forecasts for WTBRFM are provided by the National Weather Service. Support for WTBR comes from Greylock Federal Credit Union, proud to support high school arts and sports programs to help our community thrive. Greylock Federal, with locations throughout the Berkshires and online at greylock.org. And from BeFair. BeFair is one of the largest premier human service agencies in Berkshire County. If you're looking for services for a loved one or are interested in caring for the people we support, visit BeFair.org today for available opportunities. Support for WTBR comes from Berkshire Community College. BCC provides access to higher education to everyone in Berkshire County and beyond, offering more than 50 high-quality programs, small class sizes, and an affordable education to help their students of all ages achieve their dreams. At BCC, their middle name is Community. And from County Ambulance, providing quality, professional, efficient medical care and medical transportation services to the citizens of Berkshire County. Online at CountyAMB.com. Is your little one safe inside your vehicle? Is the child seat installed properly? Is it the correct seat for your child? Hi, this is Sergeant Mark Madeline with the Pittsfield Police Department, reminding you to please keep your children safe. Follow the safety seat manufacturer's recommendations for height and weight, and check NHTSA's website or our Facebook page for recommendations. If you have a question or would like your seat installation checked, please contact our department at 413-448-9700, extension 575. Our officers are certified safety seat installers. Thank you. This message is brought to you by the Pittsfield Police Department in cooperation with WTBR-FM. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to another new episode of On Patrol with the PPD here on WTBR 89.7 FM, Pittsfield Community Radio, simulcast on Pittsfield Community Television. Smart Gary is on the board. Good morning, Gary. Morning, sir. We're joined in studio this morning by Julie McDonald from ServiceNet. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Um, if you're just tuning in, you haven't heard about the kind of morning I'm having. Probationary Officer Comfort Dog Winston had an accident this morning. It threw my whole day off. I actually walked into the studio as the intro and weather was rolling. Uh, so we're we're a little bit um, we're a little bit off our our normal A game. Plus, I have to leave early today because I have a commitment that I have to be at before 10 o'clock that I found out about yesterday. So. Um, we're we're rolling we're improvising we're adapting we're overcoming that's what we do but uh we're having a very interesting conversation about um servicenet and the services they provide in berkshire county and particularly in pittsfield particularly for dealing with the unhoused or the homeless so we we covered a lot of ground talked about a lot of history talked about um you know some deliberate government decisions but i think one of the things well you said it was what led the the news coverage of the situation on the ground in pittsfield in particular last year attracted your attention and uh was enough to incentivize you to jump back over the mountain and, and, <laughs> and jump into this issue in the middle of a global pandemic which again that's a bold move yeah um so just so our listeners and viewers understand because i don't i was involved in it i was in the room for a lot of it wasn't in charge, thank God, because for the first time in a long time, people understood this wasn't a police issue to be solved. This, you know, we didn't want to criminalize the issue of homelessness, and I didn't want my officers in the middle of that because it's not somewhere they should be. Um, you know, we're we were there to support and, and assist and protect in any way we could when necessary, but we shouldn't have been the face of those conversations. Um, but we were there and. There was a lot of emotion, um, a lot of 
you know, volunteers and advocates, again, well-intentioned people, but not educated on, on the realities of the system, didn't understand the history, didn't really understand um, where we were and what we were facing. And so, you know, rewind the clock to the winter, the, the winter of 2019, 2020, before most of us had ever heard of the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, um, pretty much the city's shelter was Barton's Crossing. Uh, it's a program and a facility on Upper North Street run by ServiceNet. And uh, I don't even know what the capacity of Barton's was pre-pandemic. I think it may have been 20, but don't yeah, quote it, me it, on that. It wasn't a lot. Right. And, you know, considering what we know about the, the kind of moving census count of the unhoused in the city, it certainly wasn't the majority of our unhoused. It, right. it was a, a fairly small segment. And, and Barton's is supposed to be kind of short-term housing. It's a Correct. place to get your feet under you and kind of get back on the path and move into some type of transitional you know, rental housing, usually, um, or assisted facility. Um, but it was a congregate living facility. Mm-hmm. And when the pandemic hit, just like every other congregate living facility, nursing homes, rehab facilities, a boarding school, whatever, there was capacity concerns because that's uh, an area that if the virus got in it, it was going to spread. And the other operational thing about Barton's at the time, I'm not sure if it's, it's still the case. um, If you were a guest at Barton's and you stayed the night there fairly early in the morning, you were asked to leave, right? You you were responsible for yourself during the day. I don't remember if it was seven or eight o'clock. And you were pretty much restricted from re-entering there until evening time, right? So there's a significant portion of the day that you weren't gonna be able to access that. And for the reasons that Julie already described, health-wise, risk-wise, this is a population that more likely than not was gonna be highly susceptible to the virus. So if the virus was in the community and they left the shelter and they went out and they did their normal day-to-day activities, there was a really good chance they were gonna be exposed there was a really good chance that because of potentially compromised health conditions, they were going to be ill. And there was a really good chance they would bring it back into the facility. Um, and I don't envy ServiceNet, who had to kind of negotiate those waters and figure out what do we do. Right. Um, and ultimately, the decision, what do we do, is we can't continue to operate this facility. Mm-hmm. It wasn't going to be possible to put enough isolation, to put enough sheltering, to put enough barriers in place to ensure that the residents weren't going to get sick. Uh, And so a bunch of stuff was floated, I think including at one point a fairly large tent behind the shelter. Really? That that I was not aware of. Um, But when the emergency hit, before all, all the emergency declarations were put in place, the building code didn't wasn't suspended, and so none of these things were going to be allowable or legal. Mm-hmm. Good ideas, but just not feasible. And so then the move was on. Where do we go? Where where? What's a possibility? And I don't remember who, but somebody identified the former St. Joseph High School. Now, a lot of people didn't understand this or didn't want to hear it, but that's a privately owned building. 
right? It was owned by the diocese. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like the city could just say, hey, yeah, you know, that's there. We'll just go do it. Right. So there was a lot of um, negotiation and back and forth. And then the emergency emergency declaration was put in place. And with that, there was a shift and a lifting or a um, suspension of some building codes. And... It still wasn't just like, oh, yeah, we can do it. There was a series of inspections and there was a series of meetings and ultimately a, a large team, including ServiceNet, um, representatives of city government, representatives of the diocese, some members of the state legislature, uh, some outside experts from the Commonwealth. They're like, yeah, with, with enough time and enough resources, we can do this. Uh, Gary, I'm going to defer to you because you may actually be the most knowledgeable person in the room. Um, that, you know, what was enough time? I think it was actually, you know, it was, we need to do this in like seven days. Yeah. And, and so things that you might not have even considered, like the city of Pittsfield maintenance department, building and installing a ramp. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. Boom. We're going to get that done. Gary from our IT department with Captain Briault from the sheriff's department going down there and saying, we can wire this place for Wi-Fi. Um, we can not only can we do it in a way that the staff will be able to come here and do the work that they need to do, but we'll be able to do it with enough broadband or enough bandwidth that residents will also be able to take advantage of this. And decisions were being made on the fly. Um, you know, fire inspectors in there saying, if we do this, this, and this, and we you know secure these doors, we can meet this portion of the code. Um, we're going to be able to isolate people who may uh, present with symptoms. And so a lot of that was um, a lot of that was done very, very rapidly. A lot of hard work by a lot of really talented people. But it was tied to the emergency declaration, right? The, the existence of the shelter mm-hmm. and the permissions to do that and the modifications were made were strictly tied to the duration of that declaration. And so the shelter operated, um, you know, from... I don't even remember when. We, I think uh, it was like March until July, I yeah. believe. Yeah, I think probably late March, right? So we shifted to Second Street in the second week of March. It was March or the beginning of April, and then you know the governor's emergency declaration lasted about until July. And when the emergency declaration was due to expire, pretty much the expectation from everybody who had been involved in that early conversation was. We're going to have to close the doors on this shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem was we didn't have another plan, right? There, there. At the time we were developing the emergency plan, there wasn't a, like I said, there was another contingency plan going on. It just wasn't ready to be executed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, another hot, controversial topic. Right. And, and I think also, and, and I don't want to be talking out of school here because I was not here at that point, right. but even prior to the shelter closing, it, it was nicer out. People right. started saying, I don't want to be in here. Some people were concerned about COVID and being in a shelter right. and near other people, even though we had that social distancing yeah. all, all met in that. So a lot of people started leaving before we actually closed right. the site at at the school, and we were down very low numbers right. at so that the, point. So the population was down. Now, it, right. now you get, I, mean, I hate to say it, but now it becomes a cost-benefit analysis. Right. right? Is it worth continuing to run this operation for this number right. of people? Right. So several alternatives were explored, but ultimately you got it's July, right? So you mm-hmm. got to look at. We're not that far from October, and it's cold out this morning, right? right? So something had to be something had to be developed, mm-hmm. um, and I, I'm not actually sure what the mechanism was to extend. 
the the terms of the mm-hmm. emergency declaration. But the people who were involved in that, they they figured it out. They got it done. Right. Uh, and so the shelter is you know operating. Right. And we we did go back to Barton's for a couple of months. Okay. Um, which was which was part of all of the the park. <laughs> yes. The park debacle, yes. right? Um, however, many of the people were already in the park, from my understanding. And it, and it I mean, you know, this happens every year, yeah. right? But they're just usually spread out. Yes. So it became more of a commune. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's a lot of why people suddenly, look, I'm happy people said, hey, look, oh, my goodness, we have unhoused people. Oh, my goodness, they have these needs. On the one hand, it was a beautiful thing to see. Right. And on the other hand, as you said, a lot of people are a little bit misinformed and maybe unintentionally created a little more drama around this than was necessary. <laughs> and, and that generosity wasn't necessarily being managed. Right. Right. So that right. that created tertiary problems. Right. So I'm just about out of time. I'm going to have to walk out of here. <laughs> I'm going to defer to the two of you about whether you want to continue this conversation, because I'm sure you've got a lot of other things you want to talk mm-hmm. to about ServiceNet. Yeah. You good with that, Gary? I'm good with that. So I'm just going to, I'm going to leave this final thought, because this, this boggled my mind when it happened. And I know the people who are involved in it, and I consider them colleagues, and I love them. But at one point, under the Patrick administration, a decision was deliberately made to divert funding from what we would consider to be emergency crisis housing to temporary transitional housing and so they took the money that we had basically for vouchers Mm. to put somebody in a hotel room for a couple nights until the professionals could get them into shelter and they diverted that into apartments and i remember at the time having a conversation like the people i'm dealing with in the field that my officers dealing with they're not capable of maintaining an apartment right right you can't take these people who they're they're essentially bouncing from hotel room to hotel room between crisis episodes and say here's the keys to an apartment go have a nice life Mm -hmm. but they did and so for a long period of time the ability that we had to deal with somebody at three in the morning and say you know what there's nothing we can do for you until nine o'clock tomorrow but there's a bed at Fitch's we can take you there Mm. that went away and that decision led to a lot of the transient population Mm -hmm. that suddenly were increased when the pandemic hit right all right This is Chief Wynn. I'm signing off. Gary, thanks for holding down the fort. Please continue the conversation. You've got about 13 minutes left. 15 minutes left. And I'm going to go do this hearing thing. Thanks, Gary. We'll see you. So what else you want to talk about, Julie? So I'm, I'm moving over here so I can see your face <laughs> yeah. now because I was talking this to the back of a computer monitor. Yeah. So, no, I just, I think that, you know, Chief Wynn brought up some really valid points that, um, again, when you're on the inside, right, like like you guys are on the force and that, um, I don't like that word, and I don't apply that word to you guys, actually, in the police department, um, you see a lot of the inner things. You see a lot of the pieces uh, not only leading up to, but but that contribute to continued um, struggles with, with the unhoused. And as I said earlier in the show, a lot of times people think, well, just take some of those abandoned buildings, you know, fix them up right. and just put them in there. And, and I think they're well-intentioned. And I also think that sometimes it's fear-based, right? Like, I don't want to look at this. Yeah. I don't want to see it. Um, so remove it from my view. And it, but it's not that simple no. because, as Mike said, we can, sure, we can put people in something. But if they do not have the ability, whether it's through 
not having had their own place before and know how to budget money, whether it's the fact that affordable housing nowadays is not really affordable housing and a lot of people are on disability, right, or perhaps they're only working part-time, um, and it's really hard to get a job when you're unhoused. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to maintain a job when you're unhoused and, and to move upward um, in any sort of career. So there's a lot of these other systems uh, that are not in place to support people being able to sustain, first acquire affordable housing, right. and then to be able to sustain it, right? Because if they've been kind of following whatever routine, say at St. Joe's Shelter, right? I can During the day I have to leave, I'm out all day, uh, then I come back, and, and perhaps they are self-medicating. Perhaps they're doing all of these things. Because you put them in something and call it an apartment doesn't mean that everything else they're struggling with changes. Right. And that it's gone. So I think that those are some of the, you know, the larger conversations um, that... I think that those of us doing this work, and, and certainly PPD has, has those conversations and working on this hub that we're trying to recreate like Chelsea has, but I think that there, there just still is a lot of misunderstanding that it's just not, I would love it if it was that simple. Yeah, right. Wouldn't, wouldn't we all? <laughs> but it's not that simple. No. And, and people who have been struggling with this, whether it's for six months, a year, 10 years, it... I think it's important to acknowledge that they need a whole lot more than just four walls. Yep. So, what is um? It's been a while since I've been to St. Joe's. What, what is the what is the capacity there? So our capacity is fifty beds, okay. and we are full. Are We've been full for about three weeks, um, and quite frankly, it's it's really surprising because winter has not hit yet. So technically. We haven't gone into our winter shelter, <laughs> period, right? right. Um, that would be November 1st. So, obviously, it's been a great place to have the room for all of these people. But we're very concerned at this point yeah. about, you know, the moratorium on evictions is up. People are starting to get evicted, right? What are we going to do now with these, with all of these people? We're, if we're already full before November, yeah. You know, what, what is to come? So it's, it's really a challenge for, for us as an agency, for the city, um, and certainly for PPD as well. Um, and I didn't get a chance to say it when Mike was here, but like I, again, coming from different places in that, and this is not to throw shade on any other police department, but I am so incredibly impressed with PPD and the humanization that they allow for many of our people. I, I've seen them interact so many times with people and they and they know these men and women and they're, you know, on first name basis and the way that they approach even difficult situations. The first time that I had to call them to ask them to remove someone, um, I was nervous about it. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, what, what's going to happen? How is this going to go down? And I was so impressed with the way that they just, it was clear that they have developed relationships yep. with people. And, and I think that's a huge thing. They're very professional. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I enjoy working, working for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Professional and compassionate. Yep. You know, and I mean, at the end of the day, look, they're going <laughs> to make sure that everybody's safe right. too, right? Yep. So, 
but I think it's also a lot that's been put on the police department, right? To be not only um, enforcers, if you will, or whatever, you know, helping people to abide by by the laws that are set up to for everyone to be safe, but also to be the social workers, to be the friends, to be the this, to be the... Uh, it's a lot, you know, on you guys. So... Um, just, I just really want to give you kudos. I'm, I'm very impressed with, with the relationships that you guys have in past places I've worked, um, and when we've had to have people removed. A lot of times, the unhoused were really looked on with disdain, mm-hmm. and like, yeah, oh God, this one again. I don't, you know. Look, we all feel that way certain times about people. I feel that way about my family sometimes, right? <laughs> when we don't, when we don't say it out loud. But, but I've certainly seen in in my tenure in human services, a lot of that because it is. Look, it gets frustrating, right? We want to help, yep. and so sometimes I think we get frustrated that. None of us feels like we can do enough sometimes, um, but, I, but I just really, yeah, I think that, I think we have a pretty good partnership with you guys and understanding with you guys, and I hope that that, you know, can continue. You guys have been very supportive of us and our, and our guests at the shelter, um, and I really do appreciate that. So for the community, if they do want to reach out and help, you know, mm. what, are, what are some ways that they can help? Yeah, so um, right now going into winter, um, we are definitely looking, if we're looking at donation type of things, mm-hmm. we're definitely looking for, you know, you know, warm gloves, um, preferably, you know, any gloves will do, but preferably ones that are maybe waterproof, right? Um, winter hats, winter coats. Now, unfortunately at this time, Gary, one of the issues that we have is that we cannot take used clothing. Because we do not have the ability to launder it properly right. and all of that because of COVID. And because we're in St. Joe's. We yeah. don't have, there's not a laundromat in the basement there. So, no. <laughs> so um, you know, we, we have to, we can only take, you know, those things that are new. Um, we're always taking donations of soaps and, and, and shampoo, any sort of hygiene products and that. I think a, a big piece of what people can do, too, is to you know, maybe help us in the community to help to kind of get rid of the stigma around it. As I as I sort of inferred earlier, there are and and honestly, it's only a few. It's not a lot. The the majority of the community is very supportive of us, yep. but there are a few that make noise sometimes because they don't understand or they're afraid. This could be me or you, and any given day. But there's this drama created around it. That is much, the drama is much greater than what we actually are dealing with, yep. you know, at the shelter. As a matter of fact, several people have come to me lately and said, oh, you guys moved, didn't you? Some people don't even know that we're still at St. <laughs> Joe's. So I think that that's a good thing. That's a good thing, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think just, you know, understanding it a little bit more, taking the time to understand a little bit more. And maybe, you know, some of the people that are uncomfortable because they don't understand or what they don't know. One thing that I've told people, because I've said, oh, well, the people on North Street, they're all from the shelter. First of all, before the shelter was there, there were people on North Street, right? And I think sometimes people see it as intimidating, but maybe if they said hello, right? They could see that this person isn't blocking your way into a store. They just happen to be sitting there. Right. Or maybe you say, oh, pardon me. <laughs> so, you know, just again, that human, just that the, human, the human interaction. Yes. And I think that that will make a world of difference, yep. you know. 
So if people do want to donate, how do if they go they, about it? If they do want to donate, they can contact me at ServiceNet. Uh, then my number, my direct line is 413-588-1570. They can email me, jmacdonald, M-A-C-D-O-N-A-L-D, at servicenet.org. Last year... Um, you know, there were some people that sort of organized donations through Facebook mm-hmm. um, and that which was a great way to do that, where it was all sort of all together, because, again, we will ask. And again, thank you so much for donations. But please, please do not drop them off at the shelter. Um, organize that with me. Yep. Uh, sometimes we can pick them up or we can drop them off at a time when we're actually at the shelter. Um, and I do want to add that although we do still close during the day, we do now have in partnership with the Christian Center, um, we do have a resource center that is open during the day from nine to three. And we've already talked about as we get into this winter opening that earlier so that when the shelter closes at eight they could go right to the resource center okay yeah all right well we only got a few more minutes left anything else you want to add on well i just first of all i want to thank you for you know inviting us here today um for inviting service nat and for taking the time to you know, ask the important questions, <laughs> um, and to have this and to have this discussion. I think it's really important because people have, you know, you've got a few different sides of the camps, and people right. have their own ideas, they have their own experiences, they have their own background and frame of reference. And I just want to also say to the community, we are absolutely open to having conversations. Um, and I want to remind and reiterate that. The people that we're serving um, in the homeless shelter are sentient beings. They're individual human beings that have a right to make their free choices. And, and yeah, maybe some struggle with substance abuse, and maybe sometimes they're annoying, um, just like anyone is. If you're in a bar too late and there's someone drunk, they're annoying, right? So it's the same thing. Maybe it's your brother. Maybe it's your uncle. But, but I just want to ask you to suspend that that judgment of that that is all that they are Mm -hmm. because they are human beings with hearts, with dreams, with desires, with goals. And they need, they need a lot of help, but sometimes they just need understanding and love. Right. Yeah, absolutely. No, I really appreciate you uh, coming on to the show and speaking with us. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we'll wrap it up. You've been listening to on patrol with PPD on 89.7. WTBRFM. Uh, tune in next week for another new show, and uh, really appreciate appreciate everybody uh, listening to.